Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom. We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Today's episode is sponsored by the Nurtured Foundations online course. The Nurtured Foundations course is a podcast style course to teach parents how to start solids with their baby. Are you a parent with a child from zero to 24 months? Well, then this online course is for you. This is a comprehensive course that empowers parents to start solid foods in a confident and safe way and raise adventurous and healthy eaters from the start. We cover topics such as when to start solids, the most nutrient-dense foods to feed your babies, recipes, troubleshooting, how to prevent picky eating, and so much more. If you want information on this course, go to nourishthelittles.com and click on the link, Nurtured Foundations Online Course. You can also find a link to the Nurtured Foundations Online Course on my Instagram bio. Click on the link and look for Nurtured Foundations Online Course. All right. Welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. We are so grateful that you have taken the time to sit down and listen to today's episode. And we're glad that you're here with us. Um, today's guest has actually already been on our show, and she has a lovely podcast of her own. It's called The Ancestral Kitchen, along with her co-host. And both Corey and I were went on their podcast Um last year and they came on our podcast. And so if you go all the way back to the beginning of Modern Ancestral Mamas, back to episode seven, which I will link in the show notes, we had an incredible conversation about ancestral food, relationships, um, feeding your kids. It was such a great conversation. And we wanted to have our special guest back on because she has a wonderful amount of knowledge around fermentation and specifically fermenting grains. So we wanted to have her back on to talk to us about that. And so without further ado, Allison, welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Thank you, Christine. Thank you, Corey. It's great to be here again. And it feels like only yesterday we were sitting chatting and recording those earlier episodes, but actually like a year and a bit's gone by. I know that the time flew by. And actually, we should probably just preface this with Allison um, and well, all of us really are recording a little bit differently today. So if there's any audio mishaps or um, if the sound sounds a little bit different, that's why, guys. And uh, she is many thousands of miles away from us and we're just doing the best that we can with the mm. connections that we have. <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do the best we can. I um okay, so let's get started. We've got every episode we start the show with a little question that kind of is an icebreaker that um has to do with whatever we're gonna be talking about. So today, since we're gonna be talking about um 
fermentation, specifically fermented grains. Um, but I think the question that we're going to ask is a little bit more broad than that. Um, so our question for today is, what was the first food that you ever fermented? So not the first one that you ever ate, but the first one that in your kitchen you um, fermented. Do, who wants to go first? Christine, do you want to go first? We'll let we'll let Allison go last because I feel like her answer is going to be the vet, the most interesting. <laughs> so we have to like lead up to it, you know. <laughs> Christine, you can go first. All right, I'll go first. I actually don't remember, but I think it was either sauerkraut. I think I experimented with sauerkraut first, or kefir. Um, those are those were probably the first two that I played around with. And I've always been successful with kefir. It's always been an easy one for me. I've never had issues with it. And especially moving from in Chicago, I was able to ferment a lot because we lived in a much cooler temperature and our house down below where I was fermenting things was cooler. It was ideal for fermentation. And since I've moved to Texas, I've had a much harder time fermenting because the, uh, you know, just the average temperature of the house is just warmer, even with the AC and stuff. So I just haven't had quite as much luck, but kefir seems to be, um, it's, uh, foolproof. It just, it's, it's not hard to mess up. Um, and do you mean water? Are you do you doing mean water, milk kefir or, water? or milk? Yeah. That's both the same question. I know. Right. <laughs> Good question. Milk kefir. Okay. Okay. Corey, your turn. Right, what so about you? Turn. So this is, this is interesting because I started fermenting in um, my, when we lived with my father-in-law and his house was freezing. Like the kitchen for whatever reason was so cold and, um, and nothing worked for me. Not really, not very well. And when I moved to our own house where I controlled the air conditioning a little bit more. <laughs> um, it worked out a lot better. And all, my stuff usually works regardless of where I lived because, you know, Maryland gets very humid and hot in the summer, um, but it's cold in the winter. But down here in Georgia, it's been, um, it doesn't get super cold. Um, and obviously the summers are very hot and humid. And I've had zero problems. So anyway, what I was, my first ferments are going, were, kind of all jumbled together because my husband got on this fermenting kick all at once. And he was like, I want you to learn how to make these things because it's way too expensive to buy them. So I started with all like pretty much all at the same time, water kefir, milk kefir, sauerkraut, ginger bug, and kombucha, like all around the same, same exact time. And, um, yeah, I think I actually agree with you. I think milk kefir for whatever reason is is almost foolproof. All right, Allison, what what was your first dive? Yeah, into this? So I, don't, I don't think mine's particularly more interesting than than yours. <laughs> um, I had to think when was it, and um, I think it was two thousand and eleven, and I just got hold of a copy of Nourishing Traditions that my friend recommended to me, and I read the fermentation section in there and I just went absolutely crazy and I wanted to do everything um but I think I started with two at the same time so I did the sauerkraut because it's really accessible so you know when you're new to fermentation I think you know it's just a cabbage and salt you know yeah. most people can do that so I remember starting with that 
And then also I managed to get some raw goat's milk from a local farmer and I got some kefir grains. And so I think we were probably doing both of those at the same time. Interestingly, we were living in Italy then and our house was freezing cold in the winter. Like I used to wear a coat sometimes indoors, Mm -hmm. but boiling hot in the summer. And in Italy at the moment, it's summer there, it's 40 degrees, which is Mm, over over 100 for you. Yeah, yeah, very hot. Um, And like Corey, I've I've never really had any problems, whether it's winter or summer. You know, right from the beginning, things seem to ferment okay. So, yeah, mine were the same as yours, Christine. Sauerkraut Mm, and milk kefir together. Yeah. Maybe I we had can... to get a um, a heating element to make kombucha successfully in that first kitchen that I was making it in because it was too cold. Wow. Yeah. It just wasn't, it wasn't doing anything. So I have one of those now that my husband, Rob, made for me. It's just a, it's a heating element and a little thermostat. And they're all yeah. kind of wired together. It, it kind of looks a bit like a bomb, but it's not a bomb. <laughs> and I, I use my oven to put it in. So because the oven's nicely insulated. So when I'm not using the oven, the ferments are in there in winter. And I'm putting the heating element in and I can choose what temperature I want. He set that up for me. Mm. Um, and it cost, I think, maybe 20 or $30 in total to make it. But I just have to remember to take everything out when I want to bake something. Before you preheat the oven. <laughs> I have. I have killed oh, two no. lots of milk kefir grains like that oh, by forgetting no. to keep the milk kefir grains in the oven and putting the oven on. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, wow. Oh, oh that'd be gosh. terrible. <laughs> mm. I think the only time that would, like, be devastating would be if it was, you know, your sourdough starter or something and you didn't have a backup. Mm. That would be devastating. <laughs> Yeah, because it takes such a long time to create a sourdough starter. Yeah, it takes a while. Yeah. Oh, actually, that's a question I have for you. Did you mm. guys create your own sourdough starters, or did you get it from somebody? Yeah, no, I I've never taken sourdough for a starter from somewhere. I have, um, I've killed my starter several times. I think probably one of them was in the oven, <laughs> and I've made a new one. Um, I think I've made a new one three or four times now. I know that a lot of people talk about the kind of provenance of sourdough starters and they like to have one that's like you know 100 years old or 200 years old but I think those starters change based on where you are and the bacteria that, that you have and they're always sort of alive to the moment so I'm not bothered by having an old starter once I've got my starter going and it's strong which generally takes me about 10 days from scratch mm. um, then I I can use that fine and and I've done that three or four times in the last decade because I somehow have killed it or by mistake used it all and not not remember to leave it (laughs) Um, you got yours didn't you yeah in the past because I actually I I didn't start with sourdough I didn't do any sourdough stuff I want to say until 2020 probably when like the rest of the world did it as well (laughs) um (laughs) but I want to say probably my mom made it from scratch, maybe, or maybe I did. I don't even remember. Um, but that one died at some point. And then I got a new one from another sourdough queen, um, huh, queen, Courtney queen, <laughs> um, who was a presenter at the wise traditions conference. She was giving out her sourdough packets and, you know, started that one without a problem. I, I still have that one until at one point, I was out of town 
And for some reason, my husband and my daughter thought that they would feed it, even though it was fine. You know, it didn't need anything. And my daughter, bless her heart, she's seen me do this a million times, convinced my dad that it needed my dad, my husband convinced my husband that it needed milk. So they added milk to the starter and it was so bizarre. And I was just like, you guys, how many times have you seen me do this? Like there's, there's no, there's no milk in it. I never add milk to it. I think they were confusing like the milk kefir grains with the starter. And so they added milk to it and I messaged Courtney and asked her, can I save this? And she was like, yeah, I think you can probably save it. So I just re, you know, took a little bit of it, poured the rest of it out, restarted it up again. And it's been fine. It's in the fridge now. I haven't used it in a while. Um, but yeah, that, that one kind of made me laugh and made me realize I need to be more explicit with my instructions yeah. <laughs> I need to tell them. <laughs> I think with it, with the starter, what's really good about it is that you can save it. You know, even if it's got a layer of mold on the top, if you yeah. think you've killed it, often people come to me and say, oh, it's not doing anything. Should I, should I throw it out and start again? I'm like, no, just take a little bit of it, you know, and if there's a layer of mold on the top, just scrape the layer of mold off totally. right away take a tiny bit out of the bottom and start again you know it's not um it's not it, as long as you get the environment and the timings right in that beginning stages of feeding it then it will grow it wants to grow you know it, it's not yeah. something that's like a, a awful thing that you that is a conundrum that you yeah. have to have an IQ of like through the roof to solve it just it just requires careful attention often at the yeah beginning. I think one of the things that that really um, sort of changed my mindset on on sourdough and on just on fermentation and stuff in general is that it's such an ancient practice that's practiced all or ha- was practiced all over the world by everybody to the and it it's one of those things where you look at it and you're like okay well there's zero way that you know people in um, in Africa, we're doing it the same way as people mm. in, um, Europe. Like it's just, yeah. it's such a, it, it has to be such a, um, you know, different process for all these different people that it kind of freed me up, you know, to go, okay, well, if all of these different people have managed to feed their families with the sourdough for bajillions of years, yeah. you know, in all these different areas, in all these different climates, with all these different grains and all these different, um, you know, ways of doing it, then, then what's, who's to say that I'm doing it wrong? You know, like if it mm. works out, then it works out and that's awesome. And, and I'm, I was just like, when I, that clicked to, for me, I was just like, wow, there's so much more freedom in this than yeah. I thought there was, you know, because everybody makes sour, especially sourdough bread. And especially I guess in 2020, like when it, you know, was a big thing. Um, Cause I was making sourdough bread before that. And I, it had taken me a long time to kind of figure out my method. Um, but everybody's, you know, stressing out about you have to do it exactly this way and it has to be this kind of flour and it has to be for this exact amount of time and whatever. And I just kind of got to the point where I was like, no, it doesn't. Like it has to be whatever works for you mm-hmm. and however you get to the point where you're happy with it and and that's it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And obviously there are ways to do it that'll work better um, for a certain outcome. But anyway, I just, I feel like I... people just need to kind of relax about it. Like it's really not as big a deal as as it seems like it is. 
I, I agree. I think, you know, the, the microbes are there. They're living on us. They're living on the grain. They're living in the air. They're just everywhere. You know, all we have to do is work out a way to keep them going and feed them. And, and other than that, it doesn't need to be more complicated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yesterday when my, my six-year-old was straining out the kefir grains and she looks up at me and she asked me, so are these alive? And I was like, yes, they're alive. <laughs> and and it would sort of just blew her mind. And then she's over there like singing to them and just being like, oh, look at this cute Aww. little grain. <laughs> oh, <Aww. laughs> okay. <laughs> she thinks it's like a pet or something now. <laughs> That's so cute. Yeah. But Allison, before we go any further, we would I really, really want people to hear a little bit about your background story and how you got into fermentation and why it's important in your life and that kind of thing. So can you just give us a, a brief, um, yeah, a brief background on you? Yeah, okay. Um, so I have a, a long history with, with food. Um, I've always loved food, but throughout my childhood, I was overweight. Um, and by the time I got to my teenage years, I was obese. So when I was, when I was 20 years old, I was 20 stone, which is 280 pounds. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. Um, and it completely checkered my adolescence and childhood and growing up being overweight. Um, and then between the ages of 20 and 21, I lost half my body weight. So I lost 10 stone, 140 pounds. And that kind of changed the trajectory of my life in that once I'd done that, I kind of knew that I could do anything that I wanted to because I'd achieved that incredible kind of feat. And also it set me on a path with food that was very, very different. Um, I lost that weight originally by cutting fat out of my diet, which I would never recommend mm. anyone did and i've had to deal with the consequences of that ever since because it's mm. changed my metabolism it's changed who i am it's changed everything about my health um but it was it was you know the 90s and fat was the enemy and that's what mm. everyone was saying to do you know and and it worked um but then from there i spent the best part of a decade avoiding fat so literally I wouldn't, I didn't want to eat anything that had more than 4% fat in. So I didn't eat cheese. I didn't eat butter. I didn't eat um, cream. I didn't eat, I didn't eat the junk foods either, but I didn't eat any fat off any meats. I didn't, I just didn't eat any fat at all. And wow. I then, I had to really keep a lid on that. You know, it was, it was an effort to eat that way. And I exercised a lot and I was just terrified of being fat again because mm. at school I was the fat girl and it was just you know I wore clothes that came from outside shops and I didn't have a boyfriend and I didn't look pretty and I looked in the mirror and I used to think that's not me you know I'm there's someone else who's really beautiful inside and and people can't see it um so my 20s were very different to how I live now I was working in corporate I was smoking I was drinking I was going out late um, and then as my 20s went on I I met um, the man who's now my husband and he was very health conscious and he'd been on his own kind of health journey in a different area and together we 
just kind of worked with each other to think we we want to thrive in life you know we don't just want to live we want to thrive and we started eating vegetarian then mm. we became vegan and then for just over two years we ate raw vegan wow and <laughs> that was an interesting time um because I, I lost a lot of weight, you know, even more than I'd lost when I lost the weight. Um, I was, I'm, I'm really tall, I'm nearly six foot, but I was very, very thin, you know, I, I mm. fit into really quite small clothes then. Um, and I think my family were a bit worried about what was going on. And that all seemed to be okay for a little while. You know, I loved the creativity of it because I'm so creative in the kitchen and I felt light and agile. Then after a while, after about two years, I started to, kind of not have enough energy to move my legs or to stand up and I remember at that time I was teaching English in Italy I just moved to Italy and I remember in the classroom having to sit down in a chair because I couldn't stand up to teach because my back just I didn't feel like I had enough energy to hold myself up and then about the same time I um I hadn't had a menstrual cycle for five years and I kind of knew that I wanted to have a, a kid and I was about 35 then and I thought well you know I, I don't even have the option of having a child if I don't have a cycle you know and um, I kind of thought right okay so let's start researching how people used to well, you know traditional ancestral methods for fertility what are the foods for fertility so I started researching that and with my my partner, um, who's my husband now, we kind of decided that for us personally, we didn't want to, if we couldn't have a child naturally, we didn't, we would accept not having a child at all. You know, we weren't willing to go down the drugs route or anything like that. And so then it kind of became a my raison d'etre researching. And I found um, Elisa Vitti's clinic in New York who works with hormone problems. And from there, someone suggested to me, oh, maybe you should be in reintroducing animal foods. And so I started after quite some time of trying to ethically sit with it. <laughs> I started eating eggs and fish, which were the two things that I left last, you know, when I went vegetarian and vegan. And then I found nourishing traditions. That's that point where I started fermenting the kefir and the sauerkraut. And I read all about traditional ancestral foods for fertility. I read nourishing traditions like cover to cover and was just completely taken by it completely. And so from there on, there was quite a swift journey into reintroducing animal foods and reintroducing fat, which was terrifying because I'd avoided fat for like 15 years at that point. And I was still worried that I was going to get fat and um, <laughs> I remember sitting opposite my husband at the table and he had some cheese because he loves cheese and raw cheese and I was like well I should this looks nice it smells nice I want to have some but I basically had like a meltdown because I was like I can't eat cheese it's fat it's going to make me fat so there was quite a lot of mental and emotional work to do to get to the point where I was comfortable eating fats but then I was tracking my temperature my body temperature when before and after eating fats and seeing what happened and I noticed that when I ate animal fats my body temperature went up 
my body temperature was chronically low before then and so I continued I continued not knowing what was happening and um, then randomly one day I had a cycle after five years of not having a period at all Um, about that time you know when I got nourishing traditions I started with the kefir we found raw milk I started with sauerkraut those were the things that kind of started me off and then I found water kefir we were drinking water kefir um and then within two weeks of having a cycle I was pregnant I didn't even know that I was pregnant I thought I can't be I might not I thought I may not I thought I may not even have another cycle you know I thought maybe I'll have one period and I won't have one for six months because that used to happen to me but yeah literally within a couple of weeks I was pregnant and um now we have our son Gabriel and nearly from there I just completely embraced ancestral food and fermentation and bringing the fat back into my diet has not made me fat it's been the most stable weight of my life you know I don't worry about my weight at all and considering my history I just think it's staggering to me when I think about it I eat whole food and I ferment things and I make everything we eat ourselves apart from butter which I buy um and I'm fermenting all the time in the kitchen. I'm cooking all the time in the kitchen. And I um, am ever so grateful for everything that those traditions and the people who brought those ancestral wisdoms, both of, you know, the kind of Western price style food and fermentation back to make it available because it's completely changed my life. Wow, what a testimony. Um, I, I had heard some of that, but in the previous episode, but this was the first time that, you know, you've gotten deeper and I didn't know that you had been a vegan for so long and had actually avoided fat for that many years. And it's so sad how much the eighties and the nineties really distorted our view on such a life-giving precious food that, you know, in the past, we were doing everything in our power to eat as much of as possible. Um, and I think now yeah, you, you use a lot food. of, yeah, it is. Now you use a lot yeah. of lard, right? You have yeah. a great I relationship with lard. Lard. <laughs> yeah. And the word lard just conjures up just terrible connotations because of how we've used it. But I lard's the fact that I use most of my kitchen and I get pork fat fat from my farmer who's local. And then I render probably every, months to six weeks I render lard and we use that for cooking in stews for um spreading for lunch today I had sourdough with lard spread on it um, I use it for everything far more than any other fat in my kitchen and um what I find really interesting is you know you talked about it being the 80s and the 90s but I live in Italy and people when they see me making lard like that in Italy they come and say to me Italians but isn't it, isn't it going to make you ill? Isn't it bad for you, that lard? Isn't, and these are people who are in their 20s and 30s, you know? Mm. Isn't, isn't that a bad thing to do? You're going to get high cholesterol. And it's the legacy of that 80s, 90s thing is still in the minds of people, you know, in, in 2023. And, and they think still that saturated fat is a bad guy, you know, and they should not be eating it, which is just... It, I don't know when that goes, you know, how long it takes for that to come back to where it was before. I hope it does because saturated fat is wonderful. 
Yeah, I think it's it it's kind of interesting because you know the three of us are in this sort of bubble of a world where you know most of the people that we interact with probably in our maybe social on um, online sphere, I guess, know that that those saturated fats and those animal fats are incredibly nourishing and so good for us. Um, but sometimes, you know, when I'm having conversations with real life people, <laughs> not who are not in this sphere, um, they kind of look at me and they're like, wait a minute, you eat lard? Like, cause, cause you're right there, especially specifically lard has a bad, um, reputation, you know, like, cause there people say things, um, or there's those, those turns of phrases that are something like a, a tub of lard or, you know, calling somebody a tub of lard if they're mm-hmm. overweight or whatever. And obviously that's a really ugly thing to say, to comment on somebody's weight in the first place. However, using lard as the, as the bad guy I guess and it's such a weird um a weird social thing because there's you know people are f- totally fine with um pouring in a cup of vegetable oil or mm. scooping out a whole thing of Crisco you know and or or spreading their bread with um margarine but but as soon as you suggest using actual butter there's a heart attack that, ha- oh, maybe heart attack's a bad word because, <laughs> but you know, like people have a, a, a reaction to that, a, an emotional reaction. Um, anyway, we're, I, I do want to actually get back to, to <laughs> grains and stuff. But I know. Yeah. Fermentation, but I do, but it is important, you know, like we've got, yeah. there's, especially for, I don't know. I see one of my kind of duties in life is to kind of help discredit the um vegetable oil industry like (laughs) yeah yeah I remember you know I remember I remember just before I met my husband um I was going out with someone else and I went to his house for dinner and he ate butter. He had butter in the fridge. And I brought a tub of some kind of soy-based margarine with me because I didn't want to eat his butter. And he was like, what are you eating that rubbish for? You know, it, this is just butter. It's normal. It's natural. And I, I was one of those people who thought, oh, I can't touch butter. You know, I, if, I, if someone wow. had given me lard, then I would have been like, no, I don't, I'm not going to eat that. But then things can change like that. You know, I'm completely different now. So we should all keep like wait, waving the flag for butter and lard because the change, the possibility of change is there. I love that. What are you eating that rubbish for? <laughs> very true. <laughs> okay, so let's let's definitely get to um, fermentation specifically, yeah. um, and. I think we're going to mainly focus on grains, right? But um, can we just lay out, or Allison, would you lay out the basics for us on what is fermentation? And if you want to take that as a broader term, fine. Or if you want to just take it as a strictly on the grains front, that's fine too. Whichever one you um, feel like answering there. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think my best description of fermentation is using the microbes that are around us to 
either preserve and or flavor and or make our food easy to digest. So ancestrally, fermentation was absolutely necessary in order to have food all the year round. So, you know, I'm making sauerkraut in my kitchen and I can buy cabbages anytime I want really around here. But in the past, cabbages were, were a winter vegetable and they were only available in winter. And suddenly you had like a hundred cabbages and you yet you wanted to be able to eat vegetables throughout the year. And so preservation was absolutely necessary. Fermentation was necessary for taking that raw material, which you'd probably grown yourself and preserving it for the year. The same with meat preservation. You know, we all kind of love the flavor of, um, you know, cured sausages and that kind of thing now. But originally they were cured because the pigs were only slaughtered once a year. And then that meat was cured to preserve it. So then little bits of it could be eaten throughout the rest of the year with all the other produce that was there. Um, I, fermentation definitely changes the flavor of food and some people like it, some people don't. Um, but it also generally makes our food easy to digest. And so um, particularly with grains there, that grains are harder to digest just straight. And if you ferment them, it makes it easier on your tummy. Um, if you look at some of the other ferments, like back to sauerkraut, um, the vitamin C in sauerkraut is much greater than in straight cabbage. And in addition, with ferments, you're getting um, biotics. So the products of the fermentation give us good microbes that help our digestion in addition. So, yeah, I think I think that covers it. Is that okay? Does it make sense? Yeah, no, 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 definitely. So basically, um, originally fermentation was happening because we needed it as food preservation methods because, you know, we didn't have refrigeration and stuff like that. Um, But, and also it helps to make the food easier to digest for us. Um, it, It also has lots of enzymes in it. And like you said, brings out some of the uh, vitamins, um, and minerals makes them more bioavailable for our bodies. So yeah, yeah. All of that. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And, um, what do you, can, can you go a little bit into maybe the history of grain fermentation specifically? Cause I think, you know, a little bit about that, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I know that grains have been fermented in many places all over the world for centuries and centuries. You know, just like Corey was saying, you know, people have been making sourdough breads in every country imaginable for many, many, many years. And it's interesting that those techniques came to be without any particular influence on each other. You know, each culture by itself worked out that this is the best way to handle grains. Um, And, it's not just bread for grain. You know, when we think of grain fermentation, we think of bread. And yes, you know, lots of different cultures were making breads, um, particularly um, if you go back further in history, flat breads. So, for example, the Ethiopian injera or different pancakes like that would have been made fermented. And then sourdough has a very, very long history as well. 
Also, grains have been used to make fermented drinks for many years. Um, the Egyptians and the Sumerians made drinks out of fermented grains and you can find kind of really, really old pieces of pottery where the, the um, archaeologists have um, identified fermented grains on the shards of pottery and you find kind of ceremonial sculptures that have been made showing people drinking fermented grain drinks together through straws with a kind of a sieve on the top of them made out of stone. There really has been, wherever there's been grains, there's been traditions of fermenting them. And some people do say, um, some people think that we started agriculture because of beer, not hot bread. There's kind of a debate on that um, because the, the benefits to a culture of having um, a lightly alcoholic fermented drink were very, very strong in that they, they were used ancestrally, they were used ritually, they were used in ceremonies and they brought the culture together and tied them together. And back then, you know, 5,000 years ago, when the Egyptians were making beer, they had a beer called Booza, which they made um, back literally 5,000 years ago. Did you say Booza? Booza, yeah. It's weird how the etymology yeah. of that word is like booze, right. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was, it's to someone 5,000 years ago, the process was magical. You know, it was no one really understood the chemistry. We've only just understood the chemistry in the last couple of hundred years. But this process was something that was done communally and was a process that called in the gods or whoever the peoples worshipped at the time. And it was part of bringing the community together. And so communities revolved much more around grains and grain fermentation in the form of bread or in the form of drinks than our world does at all we we have no kind of there's only tiny vestiges of it left in our world today so it's fascinating the history and you know wherever you go if you you take oats for instance you find people fermenting oats in scotland if you take barley you find people fermenting barley in europe if you take corn and you go back to south america mexico mm -hmm. you see them fermenting corn with cacao if you go to china they, they used to grow naked oats in china and ferment things with them you know, everywhere you go these cultures as soon as they had grain seem to be fermenting them yeah that's so interesting I wonder how they intuitively knew that these grains needed to be fermented that's that's what it's I a good question and some people think you know they left they left some grains out in water in the sun or in somewhere hot and then they forgot about them and then they came back to them the next day and they were like, oh, it's all bubbly. And maybe they cooked it and thought, actually, that kind of feels better in my stomach. I don't know. It would be fascinating to go back and know and, and we'll never know. But um, when they did find that out, they stuck with it. Mm -hmm. That's that's a really important part. Yeah, part of me wonders if maybe some people died. Maybe it had something to do yeah. with um, consuming the grains not properly prepared, having some of their tribe members, you know, die yeah. because of whatever reason, similar to like, um, when you eat too much corn that hasn't been nixtamalized and you get pellagra. Yeah. Um, yeah. so maybe something like that happened and then, or, or who knows, you know, I, it's, 
it would be yeah a, or maybe yeah. the we'll maybe the tribes maybe the tribes that did the fermentation were the ones that survived better yeah. you know over over hundreds of years than the tribes who perhaps didn't ferment so something like that yeah yeah, yeah. isn't there um there's also a um like biblical accounts of of fermentation being um you know given as a method to prepare food like Ezekiel bread and um that's that's a straight up you know recipe from the book of Ezekiel um that that instructs the Israelites on how to make bread um so I don't I mean I I'm fascinated by the history of it and you know like you said we would never we'll never know um that if it was it, there's a there's a lot of you know you could kind of um insert your worldview wherever you want it <laughs> um yeah. but you know lots of cultures have have given um uh the gods or whoever they're worshiping the um kind of credit for teaching them how to do these things right mm-hmm. um yeah. so yeah that's that's fascinating um but regardless of how it came to be, these these cultures developed these these fermentation methods and um, and then passed them down and passed them down and passed them down. And now we're at the point where a lot of it has been lost, unfortunately. But there are um, people, you know, like you, Allison, and um, like Bill Schindler comes to mind because he's done so much research on um, mm-hmm. on you know, the, the, the archeological, um, uh, dealing with grains and, and food and all of that. And, um, it's thankfully, you know, there's a little bit of a resurgence happening. So, um, I, I would love to hear, cause, cause I know you've done so much deep diving, like what is it that, that you really love about the, about what you're doing with grains and 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 specifically because you do so much more than most people do um you know in terms of like you make your beer and you're making um these sort of much older versions of foods Mm -hmm. um because even the regular sourdough that most people are making in their homes is not really the ancient versions of sourdough like you said that with the injera um that's that's kind of an an African or um, Middle Eastern sort of flatbread, um, and they have different ways of making it. I know that, but it's a similar sourdough system. Um, but but what you're making is is like what would you what culture would you say you pull from most? Maybe that's my question. Yeah, um, I think I'm English. I'm from Britain, and I think the I'm most passionate about fermentation that happened in Britain and when I started kind of you know researching fermentation and breads and that kind of thing I didn't think much was happening in Britain you know I you find out well sauerkraut's from a German tradition and injera's from here and you know you hear about all these other kind of cultures that have fermentation but they didn't seem to be much native to the UK and I I feel very strongly about actual local food so when I started sourdough I thought well okay sourdough is universal 
Um, but at least I can, you know, what I can do is I can use local grains. So I went out of my way to only be baking with local grains. And I didn't want to use wheat because my husband has a wheat intolerance. And so I naturally went to the older grains. So the spelt, I went to spelt and emma and einkorn and rye to look at those. And all of those grow in the UK. That's where I was at the time. And so I started experimenting with with sourdough with those grains. And I don't cook with wheat. Um, I don't make sourdough with wheat. I only make sourdough with um, rye and with spelt. That's kind of a routine that I've got into. Um, I feel like then I... It's weird because it, it's almost like my family has pulled me forward. You know, our needs have pulled me forward. But then I've gone off on tangents when it's it's hit my personal interest. So the reason I started making bread with rye was because, like I said, my husband had a wheat intolerance. And now I have a rye course that, that I show people how to make sourdough. And then what happened was I, I love carbs. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a carb freak. And... For many years, I wasn't able to very easily eat straight sugar. So I couldn't have much fruit. I couldn't have much simple carbohydrate. And so my diet relied heavily on complex carbs. I don't do well without any carbs at all. I'm not, not my constitution needs carbohydrate. And so because I was relying on complex carbs, it kind of pushed me to find ways to make those complex carbs easier to digest, which is what fermentation does. And then um, my son, Gabriel, at the very, you know, at the early stages of his life had lots and lots of intestinal problems and he couldn't have dairy. And yet I wanted to give him a drink that was probiotic that wasn't dairy-fied. You know, he couldn't have milk kefir. He was drinking water kefir all the time, but I wanted to give him something else. And I stumbled across uh, a drink made from um, millet, traditionally in the Balkans, started off in Turkey, and then the countries like Albania and um, Bosnia, that kind of area, um, that was fermented. And I thought, wow, maybe I could make this for my son, because he could eat a probiotic drink made of um, millet. And, and of course, millet's gluten-free and lectin-free as well. Mm -hmm. And so I started trying to work out how to make that because I couldn't find any instructions anywhere. So I did the kind of like lots of research and I just started experimenting, kind of make a start of this, how can I do it? Made lots of mistakes. And now we have this drink, which is called Boza, not Boza, B-O-Z-A, <laughs> which we make all the time. And I'm, I'm in the UK at the moment, just for three or four weeks on holiday. And I brought my Boza starter with me and I've made Boza for my son to carry on having and the rest of us to carry on eating. And so my, my son kind of pulled me that way. And then I really love oats. They're my favorite grain. And when I heard that there was a Scottish fermentation that um, has been, was done for centuries using oats, that kind of tied my, my own British roots with a grain that I really, really liked and my fascination for complex carbohydrate. And so I went down that rabbit hole <laughs> and I've done loads of research into a ferment that's called Suens, which is a traditionally Scottish ferment using the kind of waste part of oats. And that started about three years ago. I think I started making that. 
three or four years ago. And that just makes a wonderful drink and a wonderful porridge. And so I'm making that regularly and I've been researching that. And that, and that has kind of brought up more traditional English oat ferments that I had no idea existed and people don't know existed, which mm -hmm. I'm experimenting with now. So I think it's kind of, you know, I knew there was so much wisdom, all the ferments that I've made before and everything I've read, you know, right back to nourishing traditions has taught me over and over again, the wisdom of our ancestors compared to the way we handle food now. And we you know when I've tasted that and I've lived that way of eating and cooking and preparing, I know how much it's changed me, how much it's changed my husband and how much it's changed my son. So I keep pointing myself that way. And then the different needs of my family and my own interests kind of pull me in certain directions. And I feel like, I feel like there's not really any particular British um, fermentation kind of stars. And yet there's all this stuff in, in legacy that is there and it deserves to be brought out and shown because, you know, there were people doing this for centuries and centuries and now no one knows about it anymore. I, can I, um, I want to learn a little bit more about the millet because it's because of yeah. you that I started uh, making millet porridge for breakfast. And mm. well, so in general, I feel as if eating the same foods over and over again, um, is probably not best for us. You know, in the past we used to eat cyclically with the seasons and so mm. foods would change. So for example, in the winter, we wouldn't really have fresh cream and fresh milk or fresh eggs, we would be eating cheeses and things like that. Um, mm. And obviously that doesn't happen as much anymore, or it's very hard to follow that seasonal nature of eating because due to globalization, everything is available all the time year round, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter. And so for a while now we've been eating oats for breakfast once a week, soaked oats, you know, soak them in kefir, that kind of thing. We eat them savory with some protein. But I kind of felt like, man, I need to change it up. Like this is, it's the same thing. Um, so I started with the millet and I absolutely loved it. It brought me back to my processed food days when my parents <laughs> would make me some horrendous boxed grain in quotation marks, obviously, because like, who knows what it was? I think it was called malto meal or something like that. Um, <laughs> it's so disgusting, <laughs> but it because that was my past experience. That's kind of like what it reminded me of. But I want to hear more about this millet drink. How do you ferment it? And is it an actual drink? And okay, so yeah, two questions. How do you ferment it? And then mm. the millet grain is whole. It's these tiny, tiny little like, is it seeds? I don't even know what they look like. But um, I mean, I know what they look like, but I don't know how to describe them properly if they're seeds or not. Um, but essentially what you explained to me was they need to be ground. Um, so when I make the porridge, I grind them. When you're making the fermented drink, what do you do? Are you also grinding them? Are you keeping them whole? Do you mind sharing a little yeah. bit about that process? No, of course not. Of course not. So millet is such an underutilized grain. And before wheat like dominated the entire world, we used to eat other grains. <laughs> For sure. We used to eat. We used to eat millet. And, you know, now sometimes when I talk to people about millet, they say, oh, that's a bird, that's bird food, isn't it? 
you know that isn't that what birds eat but like vast swathes of Italy used to eat millet as their main grain millet's really nice because it's lighter than a lot of other grains you know because it doesn't have gluten in gluten can be hard to digest for a lot of people and so I like to put millet in our diet to kind of balance out you know some of our meals are slightly heavier oats are a heavier grain you know spelt and rye are heavier grains whereas millet is lighter and certainly for us easier to digest and so the the porridge that you're talking about um is on my website there's a video which is available and a pdf download with instructions that go with it which is millet that's um fermented with whatever starter that you've got and then cooked up and served as a as a porridge um millet sometimes millet should be kind of a golden in color it is husked and usually the husks are darker in color so for example the millet porridge recipe in nourishing traditions is written for husked millet which has like a, our, our husk millet has a red husk it can be a dark brown husk but when I um, cook millet porridge, I will, I don't grind it up. I will cook the millet, which has been husked. It's had its hull taken off um, after it's been fermented for a day. So I leave it out on the side with a ferment for a day and then I drain it and then I put it in a saucepan and I cook it up and it's really very thick and it, you have to stir it all the time because mm -hmm. otherwise it sticks. Um, you can make it thinner if you want, but you don't have to. And then it, um, it becomes like a, a polenta. Mm -hmm. So um, just let me, let me go back a bit there, actually. I do grind it. You're right. I told you. Yeah, I, it. I was about yeah. to say, oh, I thought you right. did. Yeah. No, I did. I did. Sorry. Sorry. I got that wrong. Yeah, I do grind it. So I grind it first and I usually do that in the coffee grinder. Mm -hmm. And then I put it in the bowl overnight with the starter and let it ferment and then I'll put that completely with the water still in it in the saucepan mm -hmm. put more water in if I need to stir it all the time mm -hmm. and then it cooks up like you would imagine a corn polenta cooks up you know you can go and buy packets of corn to make polenta and then you can eat that fresh if you prefer it runnier you just put more water in if you want it thicker you put less water in I tend to make it quite thick because then I tip the leftovers into a loaf tin Mm -hmm. squash it all down leave it to cool down put it in the fridge and then the next day I will take it out take it out of the loaf tin and it becomes like a bread mm -hmm. that you can slice mm -hmm. um and then you can eat it like that or you can fry it um it's wonderful fried and lard oh yes <laughs> um, and that will keep in the fridge uh, for a week so if you just do one batch of cooking with the millet then you can eat it fresh one night and then it will give you stuff that you can fry for like five or six days so this is this is kind of like a grits yeah yeah Corey. yeah that's a okay. great description and also i i do think grits and polenta uh are good they're similar sim yeah they're very similar yeah. to what the millet is like because okay. what she's saying about frying it is you fry it in, in lard i haven't tried that i normally fry it in ghee but it gets a really good thick uh like golden crust to it and then yeah. you add a little bit of salt on it and it's heavenly oh my gosh yeah it is so good to if you just leave it for quite a long time in the pan which you're doing yeah 
Yeah. Because literally you get that crunchy, crispy bit on the outside, which is golden. And then the inside is warm and kind of soft. Yep. Yep. So you get both those textures together and you get the flavor of the fat in the crust. Mm-hmm. And like you say, if you put salt on it, oh, it's very, it's very, very good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that sounds a lot like, like, because you can do the same thing with polenta or grits. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so but the the drink was a Yeah, that's what question. I wanted to yeah, I want to yeah, hear about yeah. the drink. So the drink is different. Um like I said the drink traditionally comes from Turkey. It's quite thick. So it's not like um you know, it's not like water kefir because it's made of a fermented grain, it's quite thick. You can make it a bit thinner if you want, but it kind of usually verges on almost have to eat it with a spoon. <laughs> okay so this is like a smoothie texture then yeah right? like a smoothie yeah okay and the it, the place it feels in our house is you know you're thirsty but you need more calories so maybe you've just kind of been out for a walk and it's really really hot or you know you've been out doing some shopping and you carried it home and and my husband will come home or my son will come in and they'll need refreshment but they'll also want something with some calories in you know it's got more calories in it because it's got the grain in it and that is ground up but in in a kind of different stage so generally how i make that is i i have a starter which i created with millet and sugar and the fermentation the wild fermentation the microbes in the air over time go into that starter just like they would a sourdough starter and the difference between that and a sourdough starter is that it's got sugar in it the microbes consume the carbohydrate the cooked millet and the sugar and they make it bubbly and they make the the millet um, mix fizzy like literally you put it on your tongue and it, and it kind of fizzes and they make it probiotic and then I use that starter to inoculate uh, a batch of millet and generally what I do is I cook the millet up first whole so I haven't ground it with lots of water so it, it looks more like a kind of a soupy texture than it does um, that thick polenta style. And then I wait for it to cool because we don't want to put a live starter in anything that's still hot. And then I pour that into a blender and I put in sugar and then I put in my starter and I whiz it in the blender for a few minutes. And then I pour that into a fermenting jar and put a cover over the top and leave it for three to four days. There are some pictures of those on my Instagram if people want to go and see what it looks like because it you can actually see the air kind of fermenting up through it. It makes little pockets up the side of the jar. It looks really pretty. And then I transfer it to the fridge and we eat it over kind of three or four or five days, um, pouring it either into a glass. My son has it for breakfast quite a lot. I'll give him a big glass of Bosa, which I feel really good about because he's having a really um, solid portion of probiotic first thing in the morning and he'll have maybe some fruit and some protein with it as well um or he has it when he comes in after a day um at school he'll have some of it then and my husband have it has it often when he goes out and does some exercise like I said and um it they does it doesn't last long literally the one I made here like three days ago has literally all gone I had to say no keep some of it I need a starter for the next batch (laughs) quick keep a bit (laughs) so you just you just keep the end of the one you've made back as a starter and it will stay in the fridge like a sourdough starter does for you know a couple of weeks if you're not ready to make your next batch and then you make your your next batch and it's just it's such an unusual drink 
because it's thicker, because it's so fizzy. Like the bubbles in water to keep it sort of held in suspension in this thicker drink, and they like it feels like they burst on your tongue when you when you drink it. It, it, it's really delicious, really delicious. Is it is it it sweet? Yeah, yeah. that's what I was wondering. Yeah, Yeah. is it sweet? Is it sour? Because you mentioned that you add more sugar to it, so that's what I'm wondering. But the sugar, the grains, or sorry, the um, the the not grains. What am I trying to say here? The um bacteria eats the sugar yeah right yeah, yeah. that's right and so, so then is it becoming sorry i just have i want to throw this out there too how much alcohol is in this yeah drink? Okay. so good questions um so tradition it's still served in turkey in istanbul you can go to a shop that sells boza and you can buy a supermarket in the supermarket you can buy boza the boza that's in turkey is a lot more sugarier than mine a lot sugarier i think they stir sugar into it after the fermentations happened and so it's very sweet my my boza is not like that because we're just not used to that kind of sugary taste and we don't want it it is slightly alcoholic um probably slightly more than water kefir but the beauty of it is that it's really easy to get it the way you want by leaving it for less or more time Mm. so if you you put the starter in you put the millet in you put the sugar in if you leave it to ferment for like a day day and a half depending on your ambient temperature it will be sweeter it won't have kind of pushed that much into the sour flavor and it will have less alcohol if you leave it longer it gets tangier tartar it's still got a bit of sweetness in it it's more alcoholic if you leave it too long which we have sometimes we've forgotten about it or it's been particularly hot you end up with something that's very very sour hardly any sweetness left and can be quite alcoholic it's trying I think the 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 key is to try and catch it somewhere where it's still got a bit of sweetness but it's got that beautiful tartness and it's still fizzy and it's not alcoholic right so so there's a lot of conversations about letting children eat um kombucha or or any of those sort Mm. of fermented things because of the alcohol content and I don't know if you guys have done any research on this but what I have the research that I have done um kind of suggests that those products, those fermented products actually don't have more, or they have around the same amount of alcohol as a glass of orange juice. Um, So like if you're willing to let your children drink orange juice, uh, it's going to be about the same amount of of alcohol content. And um, that it, you know, obviously if you're going to use the ferments, then you're getting other um good things from them yeah I think I feel the same I mean it's very difficult to test the alcohol yeah and obviously no one particularly wants to put in any money to test alcohol levels unless they're kind of the government trying to ban something um but I you know I taste it and my husband tastes it and we feel comfortable with with our nine-year-old having it um it's not the way that I make it. It's not particularly alcoholic. I didn't know that about orange juice, but I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, when I make water kefir and when I make boza for my son, I'm giving him real food with live probiotics in. Yeah. And for me, that feels far stronger of a, of a motivation than, than, than the slight, you know, I, I'm not worried about the alcohol content at all. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. 
You mentioned something about putting it in a jar. When you put it in the jars, mm. I'm guessing you're putting it in a glass jar. What type of lid are you using? Are you using those special lids that have, oh, what like is the airlock the, lid? The, yeah, the airlock lid that has the contraption up top to let it breathe. I don't even know what that is technically called. Yeah, I, I don't have any of those lids. And in, okay. in, in um, like 13 years of fermenting or how long I've been doing it, I've never had one of those lids. Okay. <laughs> and I ferment, I fermented everything, you know, I make my own beer. Right. <laughs> and so, no, I'm literally, I put it in a glass jar. I don't sterilize my jars, um, but I make sure they're clean. Mm -mm. And then I will cover that jar with something to keep the dust out but allow a bit of air in. So sometimes that's just a bit of muslin with an elastic band around the top. Sometimes that's a lid that I leave slightly kind of off. It's mm -hmm. just got to keep it clean and stop flies and things going in it, but um, allow it to kind of breathe as well. So yeah. yeah, I think the simpler, the better. You don't need things in your kitchen. You know, I've, like I said, I've been fermenting for over a decade and have done some serious ferments and, and I, I've never had one of those airlock lid things. The time that I find that those are really useful is with um, vegetable ferments, like keeping, being able to keep them submerged. That's, mm -hmm. that's um, for me, that's been the most useful time to use those. But I, I've, I really only use them for that. Like if I'm making kefir, water kefir or milk kefir, obviously, I just use a regular mason jar with a with a screw on lid. I don't even I don't even leave it open. I actually like put a lid on it. Mm -hmm. Um even with my sourdough starter, I put a lid on it. I don't leave it open to the to the air because I, I it works out better for me that way. Okay. But this is this is one of those things like I like I said, like, you know, everybody's gonna figure out a way to make it work yeah. for them. Because I used to put a, a coffee filter on it with a rubber band. Or, or a, um, you know, kitchen towel sort of thing to let the air go through. And it just didn't work as well. Wow. Um, so, so then I, I started. Wanted, I wanted to ask that. about your lid thing. Um, does it have something that keeps the, you're saying it's keeping the vegetables under the brine. Well, does it so, have like a weight then in it or something? So I have a weight. Yeah. Like I have some glass weights, you know, that fit into the jar. Um, and then I also have. Um, an airlock lid that kind of has it lets air out but it doesn't let anything in yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah um and I can't so remember. I use I use those glass weights as well for my vegetables yeah. for my sauerkraut and things usually with the sauerkraut I put a cabbage leaf over the top of the sauerkraut yeah, and, then well. I, and then yeah. I put two or three of those weights in and make sure yeah. the brine is up as high as it can go but then I just put a normal lid like a mason jar lid on it um, yeah and leave it so I don't have that airlock. Mm, yeah. Stuff. Um, out of curiosity, have you ever done anything with buckwheat? So buckwheat, I used to ferment quite a lot. I haven't done it recently, but um, a long time ago, I used to make buckwheat pancakes and a buckwheat pizza mm. with fermented buckwheat. And at that time, I had not started making sourdough. Um, it was before I had my um, son just when I'd started eating ancestrally and learning about fermentation I think it may be 2013 and I used to um, buy buckwheat and sprout it and then blend it up with water and leave it to ferment without a starter in for a day a day and a half and 
um, then at that point you can literally, if you grease uh, a shallow baking sheet, you can tip that buckwheat mix into the baking sheet and cook it and you make like a pancake or you can fry it. It's really beautiful fried. Or another thing I used to do with that same mix is um, I, at that point in time, I had a bread maker and I literally used to tip the mix into the bread maker, put it on and set it on cook only. And then we have buckwheat bread after a couple of hours. So I hadn't learned anything about sourdough starters or, or anything then. I just used the natural ferment that was in the air and it did ferment you know it would go really really bubbly and providing I got the consistency of the, the, the batter right so it wasn't too runny you know because if it was too runny it's not going to cook into a bread um we used to have yeah literally almost every night we used to have fermented buckwheat bread and if you sprout it beforehand um, buckwheat is an incredible source of b vitamins and sprouting is what releases those b vitamins so I remember researching trying to research b vitamin supplements a natural not mm. a chemically you know synthesized mm -hmm. ones and finding out that the ones that i could get in my local health store that were natural were made of fermented buckwheat mm. so i thought okay i'm just gonna i'm just gonna so it made a sprouted buckwheat so i just thought i'm gonna sprout some buckwheat um and so you know if you do have the time to sprout it before you ferment it then the b vitamins will be fabulous in it as well but it's really tasty i love the flavor of buckwheat and um, it it ferments so well the only thing you need to be careful of i think with um buckwheat is the top of it can go very pink mm -hmm. so if you mix it with with water and leave it you know if you ground it up and with water and leave it to ferment the top of it has a habit of going pink and so generally if i'm leaving it for 24 hours or 36 hours i would and i still do when i do it stir it like every 12 hours to change that top bit that's exposed to oxygen to get it back under the surface as well. Okay. It does yeah, have a really strong good. smell as well. You you might think that it's going off because it, mm -hmm. the, the off gases from fermenting buckwheat are much stronger than you would get from other grains. So you might think you've made a mess up and you've, you've um, done something wrong, but that's normal. It doesn't affect the taste. So just okay, to clarify, so oh yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say? No, Cora? go ahead. You go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so just to clarify, you're taking buckwheat groats. Yeah, that's right. So the, um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with that, that's the whole buckwheat grain. Um, and then you're putting that into water along with yeah. a starter of some sort, right? And then no, I was at that point, I was doing it with, with no starter. Just water, just, just to sprout soaking it. the grains, soaking the grains in okay. water. And then, um, you have to rinse them a lot because they let off a lot of sap saponins and they're very kind of sticky. Okay. And then once they're rinsed, put them in a blender with water, blend them up into a batter. And, and I've done it without putting a starter in. You could, but many, many times I've made the bread and pancakes just letting it ferment with whatever's on the grain and in the air. And so then it sounds like there's two fermentation processes. The first one is for mm. how long, like maybe a day or something? While you're soaking, like, you mean? Well, it's soaking, right. So you're yeah. rinsing it regularly, maybe 24 yeah. hours. And then um, the second one after you've blended it is yeah. longer, maybe three or four days. No, probably I would say it depends on your temperature, mm, but 24 right. hours to 30, 24 to 36 hours. I wouldn't okay. leave it much longer than that. It, it should be really active after that time, mm. as long as you're not really cold. Okay. 
What were you going to ask, Corey? Okay. Okay. So I was going to say that um, since we touched on the, on, on, you know, the, the releasing of the B vitamins with sprouting mm -hmm. and then, and then you would ferment after that. I, it, I think we would, if we could go into a little bit into um, the overall, I, I mean, we've touched on this a bit, but like the overall health benefits of um, fermenting grains specifically, but also, um, you know, there's this talk of that there are three different ways to prepare grains. There's soaking, sprouting, and fermenting. And honestly, I did not even realize that those would give you different nutritional profiles until you've just mentioned this. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's fascinating, but so, so the benefits health wise of fermenting grains, and then maybe also why you would maybe sprout versus ferment mm -hmm. versus soak or, or all of those three things together, which, and I didn't really even consider that you would do both of, or all three yeah okay or any combination of so if i start with fermenting grains yeah um on their own grains are really quite hard to digest they're complex carbohydrates and our body has to work quite hard to break those down into simpler complex into simpler carbohydrates so they can be absorbed by our, our systems you know whereas fruit um, as you know, is a, is a simple carbohydrate. There's less work by our tummies. And so with fermentation, it's almost like it's a pre-digestion of the grain in that the microbes that you put in with your grains to ferment will do some of that digestion for you. They will break down some of those complex carbohydrates and that makes it easier for you to digest. In addition, at the same time, as then breaking down those complex carbohydrates and making the food much easier for you to digest. They're also changing sometimes the structure of the grain, releasing um, vitamins and chemicals. Like Christine said earlier, enzymes are produced and they're putting probiotics into your food. So everyone knows that sauerkraut, for example, is full of probiotics. Um, but a lot of people think that if you heat any fermented food, you lose all the benefits of it. You lose all those probiotics. It's not um, strictly true. And the research on this is kind of ongoing at the moment. And scientists are only really finding out now the, the things that are left over after you cook a fermented product. So, for example, sourdough is a fermented product, but it's cooked. And so therefore one might think, oh, well, I'm not getting any of the, the goodness of those microbes because all those probiotics have been killed. But in fact, there are things that are left in that sourdough from that reaction that's happened, the fermentation, like, for example, postbiotics and paraprobiotics, which go into your intestine and do amazing work that there are health giving biotics. They aren't the same as the probiotics, so it's a good to have a mix of raw and as well as, you know, cooked fermented foods. But there are things in sourdough from that fermentation process that are incredibly helpful to our gut. So, you know, not easy, not, not only does it make those grains easier to digest, 
but it's also giving you um, things that are getting left in your intestines, which are going and doing housework for you, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, does that answer the fermenting side of it before I go on to the other ones? Yeah, I think so. So yeah. we're so we're looking at um, a sort of chemical change to the to the grain that makes yeah. it more digestible and yeah. more bioavailable. Yeah, correct. Um, soaking in and of itself is is a great thing to do to a grain. Um, it just makes it softer and more easy to digest. The longer you leave it, it might actually ferment. So you know you can you can leave grains in water and you can soak them with um, a, an acidic medium. So like a bit of vinegar or some kefir or some sauerkraut juice. And that process will soften the grain and it will potentially deactivate the phytic acid, which mm -hmm. might be in the grain, depending on what grain you're working with, which then means that you are going to get more minerals when you eat that grain than you would have done originally because phytic acid binds to minerals and stops them being absorbed in your intestine. Mm -hmm. So soaking, the fermentation process kind of does that in and of itself. So you don't have to soak something before you ferment it because mm -hmm. the fermentation does that same process. Sprouting is, is a bit different in that it also releases extra um, vitamins and, and minerals from the rain. So uh, in the soil, in order to create plants, you could eventually become green and create a new plant. And in that process, the stored vitamins that are in the grain are released in order to provide. If you sprout your grain, you are doing that. And in addition, you are changing complex carbs to simple sugars. So mm. the grain will be, again, easy to digest, but it will probably have more vitamins available for you because the store of them in the grain has been released through sprouting. Whew, that's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for breaking that, breaking that down like you would a grain. Um, I think that that's really important information because there's so much talk of how um, grains are bad for you mm -hmm. or gluten, you know, wheat or whatever is, is, um, just, you know, the worst food that you could possibly eat. It's, we've kind of gone from fats, the worst food to now yeah, grains or carbs are the worst food. And mm -hmm. it's so much more, um, not complicated, but, um, nuanced The conversation is more diverse than that. Um, yeah. and I think that you, you've done a nice job just kind of making that more simple so we're, we're looking at um you know grains as something that just needs a little bit more tlc to be able to make them um <laughs> now everybody's gonna start singing i don't want no script um so they need more care to be able to be available to the body yeah and so these are there are three different processes that we can kind of take them through that are going to give us mostly the same um uh outcome making yeah. them more bioavailable and more nutritious and more digestible 
but these yeah. things could be potentially combined to um to make these foods really wonderful i think you've got to make it kind of practical you know so grains like you said are have been demonized somewhat but when you treat them with a bit of attention like our ancestors did for thousands and thousands of years before we messed it up with industrialization then they can give you so much reward because they are so calorie dense that mm. you get much more from them and they they have an incredible amount of vitamins in most grains when you look at them you can get so much from them um from from less of them you know you can you can eat less of them and get more calories from them um but I think it has to be kind of practical, you know, so your listeners, some of them will have more time, some of them will have less time. So it takes less time to pour some grains into a bowl and pour water over them and put a bit of um, live vinegar in them and leave them overnight than it does to be making sourdough bread every day. Um, mm. So it's important to not be put off from including grains in your diet because you think that it, it's going to be a lot of work or you think that you can't eat grains you know you could choose a grain that is gluten-free and lectin-free like millet or sorghum and then you could just soak that and see how that works with you or if you particularly like oats you could soak your oats overnight with some kefir in and and see how you go with those those things take minutes before you go to bed and yet will reward you with with a breakfast if you have the oats the, with the breakfast that will keep you full if you mix it with some lovely protein um all all day really you know until lunchtime um so yeah i think i feel like it's important to say it's it's good to be practical and realistic with what we can do in our own kitchens with our own time and to understand that there are levels you don't have to be making your own beer like i am you can just be soaking some oats with a bit of milk kefir overnight and that's wonderful yeah I agree I, with that I think I think it is really important to make sure that people understand that you know there are people like like you Alison or like I really enjoy making sourdough bread uh, but I know that it is a it's a process and it's a you have to be home for a whole day to be able to pull yeah. it off um, and that's just the day of you know, stirring it together and then stretching and folding. It's not a lot of work, but you have to be there to do it. Um, and then you have to wait another day or so and then cook it. So it is a process and it is maybe a little bit out of reach. And that's okay if that's not, you know, where you're at. And I think you're right. I think oatmeal, uh, soaked oatmeal is one of the easiest uh, starters, places to start. And, and it's a very common breakfast item you know like it's a really easy if you need to try and slowly move your family over from eating regular standard american sort of food um soaked oatmeal is a is a is a fairly easy win i think can i just talk about soaked oatmeal for a few minutes yeah yeah so there's a video on my homepage, ancestralkitchen.com which walks you through how to make soaked oatmeal the thing about it from a practical point of view is that you can just literally put like five days worth of oatmeal in a bowl and soak it overnight and then cook some of it up one day and then put the rest of it in the fridge. 
and the fermentation will really slow down because it's in the fridge. And then the next day you can get it out and cook small breakfast or, you know, two days later you could get the bowl out and, and make some more porridge for, for breakfast that day. It's, if you do it like that in bulk and put it in the fridge, utilize the fridge, then you literally can touch it one time when you mix it all up, like on a Sunday evening, and then it can give you breakfast that you can cook up in in a saucepan in you know 10 minutes on your stove for the rest of the week um and you don't you know you don't have to have a sourdough starter to do it you can use a sourdough starter you can use sauerkraut juice you can use water kefir you can use a ginger bug you can use milk kefir you can use apple cider vinegar you can use anything whey that's got live bacteria in it yeah you can use whey thank you um and it it's so easy and so easily scalable to make it work for you even if you've got very little time and and like like you said Corey everyone's used to oatmeal and breakfast and so it's a familiar kind of food to try and help transfer over to um, a processed grain or a grain that's been fermented and, and had some caretaking over it so it's also a good thing to to test the water with people or to you know try on your kids um, for them then to to take it and you know put whatever toppings they want on it for their own breakfast and it, and it, it's fun and something that's familiar that's that's important as well mm. yeah and you said something a little bit while back about the millet and mm. um the millet being lectin and gluten-free and i just wanted to clarify for listeners that you know, both of those are anti-nutrients. So when she's talking about lectin, lectin is an anti-nutrient similar to phytic acid. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Allison, uh, that also binds to the minerals in our body. So we're trying yeah. to, as she mentioned, neutralize these to make the nutrients in these grains more bioavailable, correct? Yeah, that's right. The, the lectins are an interesting one. Um, in that they can cause a lot of inflammation in the body. Mm -hmm. And when we were working with my son's healing, um, his healing journey is still going on as all our healing journeys are going Mm -hmm. on. But um, for for many years, he was seriously, you know, had serious intestinal problems. And the last piece of that, that puzzle was lectins. We had tried many, many things with him to improve him. And, and a lot of things had improved him but he still had issues and when we started looking at the food he was eating and what had lectins in and when we removed a couple of things that clearly I knew had lectins in out of his diet he was completely like transformed Mm -hmm. and able to be you know virtually 100% well Um, so it I always feel like it's healing's like a bit of a, a game and you need to be open to what works for you and what doesn't work for you because some lectins he he appears to be fine with other lectins he isn't and it took it's taken us many years of trial and failure and error and frustration and little wins to work out what works for his body and what doesn't and whatever we can do along the way trying a lectin free grain or trying to soak something each of these is a is a little potential a little step to to much more health and if we can be consistent with the little steps i feel like 
you know, from my own experience, we can get somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, this is why Corey and I emphasize almost every episode, we somehow talk about how we are all bio-individual. There is not, Mm -hmm. there is no one diet that fits everybody's needs. Also because of our own backgrounds and where we're from and, you know, our ancestry and that kind of thing. So um, I think that's the beauty of the ancestral nutrition, because the basis of it is real whole foods that are prepared properly. And then from there, you can take that to make it work for you personally. Um, Like you mentioned, you know, you need more, you need carbs in your life. And I actually love that you said that uh, because we, (laughs) like we touched on it before there, specifically in the health world, there is starting to become this obsession over going carb-free and for women in particular, especially women in fertile, um, fertile age years, we do need those. And women who are going through any adrenal issues or thyroid issues or, um, things like that, there, there are instances in our life where, you know, we do need these certain macronutrient groups. Um, so Anyway, but I want to make sure that we have enough time to talk also about your courses. So can you share with our listeners about, tell us all about your grain fermentation courses or whichever ones you have and where can we find them and that kind of thing? Thank you. Um, So yeah, I have a website, which is ancestralkitchen.com and there's a section in there for courses. So you can go and nose at that. Um, I have... uh, a course for the Boza, which I talked to you about, the probiotic millet drink, which is on there. I also have a course for Suens, which I mentioned, which is the Scottish oat ferment. How do you um, spell that? You spell it S O W A N S. But you pronounce it Suen. Oh, interesting. Okay. And you said it's that was the Scottish oat drink? Yeah, so that's a, an oat fermentation and you get, at the end of it, you get a porridge, which um, has been fermented already, and also a probiotic drink, okay. which is um, the liquid that the oats are fermenting in, which is tangy and lemony. The porridge, I don't know how it happens, Some by some miracle, the porridge ends up tasting of honey, even though there's no honey in it from the wild fermentation. It is an absolutely wonderful um ferment and traditional to scotland and i've had lots of people take that course i think that's my most popular that's been my most popular course and and people really love it they use the porridge to make bread they use the porridge as mashed potato you know they're they're cooking up the drink and heating up the spices and mulling it it's a it's a fun different ferment you know so i had the bozo and the suans also on my site i have um uh a course on how to create a rice sourdough starter, which is pay what you want. I have um, a course generally on fermenting oats, which is only $8. That's kind of an introduction to fermenting oats. And then I have a course on how to make sourdough rye, which is a large course, which takes you through the whole process. A a beginner who'd never made um, any sourdough bread could do it because it talks about the starter. Then it talks about how to, or talks you through how to make two rye breads, a sandwich bread, and then a, a Russian bread, which is really spicy and lovely. Mm. And also cakes and pancakes in there. 
Um, all my courses are video courses. That's the way I like to teach. Um, and I think that's it. I haven't got a course on beer yet, but I probably will do hopefully in the next couple of years. I've got a course on chocolate as well, how to make chocolate at home um, from the bean um, to bar without any special expensive equipment, just using equipment in a, in a small kitchen. So yeah, all of those are on my site and um, there's more details on them on the podcast ancestral kitchen podcast as well we've got episodes which talk about kind of the benefits of each of them and go into more more depth on each of them and then where can listeners connect with you on social media aside from your website yeah so on social media i'm, I'm only on instagram and my handle is ancestral underscore kitchen simple as that that's that and your your podcast is Ancestral Kitchen podcast. podcast. Yeah, right. that's right. Okay. Ancestral so Kitchen if they podcast. just go in Google or not Google, um, like search on Apple Podcasts or something. That's what they want to look for. Yeah, Ancestral Kitchen podcast, and I do that with um, my co-host Andrea, who mm -hmm. both of you know, who is over in Washington State, mm -hmm. and so we've got kind of a juxtaposition of her, she's in Washington State and I'm in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Does your podcast have an Instagram handle as well? Yes, it does. Thank you for asking. Ancestral Kitchen Podcast, all one okay. word. Got it. Perfect. I'll make sure awesome. that we get all of these. Well, this has been so informative and interesting. And, um, oh, I did want to give you one. I did want to ask one more question really yeah, quick. Yeah, go. Um, if people are really interested in history of grains and fermentation of grains um, historically, where do you find your um, information on this? Because I know you do a lot of research on it, but I just like, where would you even start? <laughs> mm, that's a really good question. I think the sources are really diffuse. The thing that introduced me to the beer, for example, was Sandor Katz's World Fermentation book, which mm -hmm. is, I, I'd recommend heartily. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. And he has a recipe in there for the Egyptian 5,000-year-old beer. Um, Boozer and that kind of started me off but then I had to go to his bibliography and start looking up the things that he looked up and and then I I do lots of research online and I find papers and old books and that kind of thing there isn't really a one-stop place that I go um, that I can recommend that listeners go to for information on historic grain ferments I am hoping um in the next two or three years to write a book on oats and a lot of the recipes in there will be fermented and they will all draw on the British tradition. So there'll be lots of these kind of recipes that I'm uncovering from the UK, reimagined and brought into a modern kitchen and made you know, easier and accessible for people. But I've got to write that book yet, so it's not out there. Wow, wow Alison. <laughs> I was what really hoping you were gonna say that you were gonna do something like that, so. Yeah. We'll be cheering that, you on. That, that was the answer I was looking for. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, and now, now you've put it out into the universe, so you have to do it. Um, thank you so much, Allison. Thank you for joining us. I know. Oh, thank, thank you, you for this having me. Such a good conversation. Um, before we sign off, just one last thing. Corey and I love, uh, we we just really enjoy when we get reviews. So we wanted to read one review um, from a follower real quick. Uh, and this was on our organ meat episode, which 
Alison, I think um, I loved that episode. I, I listened to know. both of them. I thought it was brilliant. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, Janina's incredible. She's she's such a wealth of knowledge. Um, but yeah, so this this particular listener, uh, thank you so much for writing this review. She said both episodes. Well, first she started off with Janine is a humble expert. Both episodes are not only packed with amazing information, but also with interesting stories. The interviewers ask great questions, which prompts Janine to weave her vast knowledge with her heartfelt stories around her journey. Her passion for organ meats shines through in a way that will leave you inspired and curious. And I think curious is the right word. Um, she she has such an incredible uh, joy and passion when it comes to eating organ meats. And that's sort of what spurred me to jump into that and say, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this out. And you know what, Allison, I think talking to you about this grain fermentation, it's the same. You have such, you, you, you get, you, you become so alive and, um, just a joy around talking about grain fermentation that it's infectious. And now I want to try more, you know, I've done the millet. Yay. I'm like, okay, I can't wait to try the, the boza. <laughs> yes, it's true. I'm, I'm so excited to go in my kitchen and try more grain fermentation. Um, so thank you for coming on and, and sharing your, your passion with us. Thank you. Thank you for doing what you, you are doing both of you, because the more we put out there, the more people we can reach and it's work that is so, so important. So thank you yeah. too. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Alison. No problem. Thank you. If you if you have questions about the Bosa, then then come and ask me or about the millet or anything. You know I'm going to. I asked you about the millet, so I'll I'll probably come (laughs) back soon. (laughs) Tell Andrew we say hello too. I will. I'm speaking to her tomorrow. Awesome. I will. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye guys. Thank you. For now. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at NourishTheLittles and online at NourishTheLittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at ForNutrientSake and online at ForNutrientSake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas. expressed in this episode are those of the guests. They do not reflect Corey and I's and Modern Ancestral Mama's personal views and opinions. We do not take responsibility for any ideas expressed during the podcast interview. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.